the, uh, through this series we've been talking about, Can I Get a Witness? In the times that we find ourselves and where we're at today, we talked about early on that telling our story about what God has done in our lives is not a natural thing that the Western church does. It's absolutely a natural thing in all the other countries that I've gone to. But it's, it hasn't really been natural here in the United States or even in Europe. And we find ourselves in a society that asks the question all the time, does God exist? Where is he? But we have a society that we have surrounded ourselves with that has never heard a God story about how, with Andrew, how God looked over him through his accident. We never heard God stories about how God saves marriages. We never heard stories about how God has helped me overcome my addiction. And so its natural conclusion is, everybody around us thinks God doesn't exist. Because it's not a natural thing to share your story. And, and what I wanted to encourage everybody do, to do through this series was how important it is to share your story with one another. Because in Revelation 12, it says that in the end times, when things get tough, how do we survive? It says by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And we don't share testimonies. One of the things we wanted to do, what I wanted to do was here was to encourage different ones to come up and tell their story. Because it's so important that at least we start practicing it in church so that we can do it out there. See what I mean? We need some place to practice that. And each evening I had given you a question that you could answer. We gave three questions. The fourth question tonight is, how can God use me today? And by answering each of the four questions, you would be able to capture what your story is. What was my life like before I became a Christian? How did I become a Christian? How has God changed my life? And how can he use me today? By just answering those four simple questions with a few sentences, you have captured your story. And that is so powerful. The, we talked about the witness of the woman at the well where she goes back and through her witness, a village is saved. We talked about the witness of the blind man before his community, before his parents who disowned him and didn't want anything to do with him. And then also the religious leaders. And, and tonight we're going to look at the witness of the man who was demonic and how he wanted to go with Jesus, but Jesus said no. And it's very interesting, that last verse, the place that he tells him to go first to share his story is with his family. How many of us have family that aren't saved? Been there. That's the hardest thing to have those conversations with somebody that isn't saved. I remember having a conversation with Tammy's grandmother, great-grandmother, grandmother, and we're over there playing cards, and she pointed at me and says, I don't want to hear a thing from you. I'm going to take my chances when I die. It's not always easy to share our stories, and sometimes it's, it, we, don't, we see, don't see any benefits from what is going on. But tonight, if you'll take your Bibles, and we're going to talk about a tomb raider, that became a town crusader. This man that finds himself in this cemetery and what God has done through him. But before we get there, just prior to that, something happens. It's miraculous when Jesus calms the storm. So we're actually going to start in Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 22. Starting with verse 22. And one day Jesus said to his disciples, let us cross to the other side of the lake. And so when they got in the boat and started... As they sailed across, Jesus settled down for a nap. But soon after, a fierce storm came down on the lake, and the boat was filling up with water, and they were in real danger. And the disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And when Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and suddenly the storm stopped and all was calm. Then he asked them, Where is your faith? And the disciples were terrified and amazed. I don't think they were amazed that they recognized that Jesus was God. 
Because it isn't until the demon who recognizes that Jesus is the Lord. But they are amazed. I think a lot of times we're amazed by events that happen around us and we don't give God the credit. You know what I mean? We ask people all the time, have you seen a God thing? Can you tell me a God story? And they had, ah, let me see, has something happened today? Maybe last week? Oh, I did hear about something about a month ago. But God amazes us every day. What I want you to see is, the first one, if you go to the next slide, Steve, is that there's danger in witnessing. Now, but I want you to see why we are always afraid. We're afraid because of two reasons. One is, we don't believe the promises in this thing right here. The promises in the word. Look at that first verse where Jesus said, One day Jesus said to the disciples, This is Jesus. The word had become flesh. So Jesus is speaking the word. Now what does Jesus tell the disciples? Let us cross to the other side of the lake. The disciples didn't believe it because they didn't think they were going to make it. Did you ever think about that? Jesus told them where they were going. He told them they were going to make it to the other side of the lake. That was their destiny. That's where they were going, and they didn't believe it. Do you really believe the promises in this book? When we talk about witnessing or sharing our story with somebody, we don't believe these promises in here, and it causes fear. We don't believe the promise when Jesus said that don't worry about what you're going to say, that I'll give you the words. Now, that's hard. And, and I've been there. But what is amazing is there's been so many times when I'm walking prisons and, and talking to guys one-on-one in cells. And it's amazing when all of a sudden, as I'm talking to them, all of a sudden I can recall scripture that if you were to ask me you know, prior to that, I probably couldn't even quote because I forgot about it. And all of a sudden these scriptures come to mind. And I'm thinking, well, I'm pretty good. But that doesn't have anything to do with it. It has a spirit Raising up with us and, and sharing the truth and the knowledge of the things that go on. The second thing that happened in there, which is really important to help us overcome our fear, and it has to do with prayer in verse 24. The disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master. That's the same as praying. You say, wait a second, they're having a conversation with Jesus about something that's happening around them. Yes, that's prayer. They went to the person. Like we go to the person who sits at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And even when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and takes those thoughts and those yearnings and those desires and those things before the Father. And what I love is they shouted at him. How many of you ever shouted at God? Been there, done that. It's okay. Did Jesus get on to him for shouting? No. You read the Psalms, David shouted a lot. David was angry a lot. But here's what I want to tell you about your relationship with Jesus. He's a friend. We shouted at our friends. Asked them, well, where have you been? If you'd have been here, I wouldn't have gotten in trouble. It's okay to shout. But we have to do two things. We have to believe the promises in the word when witnessing gets tough and we're in danger. And we have to go to the Lord, even if you have to shout about it. It's okay. I was on an airplane flying from... Illinois to Washington, D.C., had a meeting there, and there was a terrible storm, didn't realize that, the, that there was um, tornadoes over D.C. and were coming in, and the pilot gets on, you know, the intercom and says, everybody sit down now. I never heard anybody say that before. Sit down now and buckle your seatbelts. And all of a sudden, the, the turbulence was horrific. Now, it was so bad after that, I didn't fly for a long time. I rented a car and drove home. That's how bad it was. Because when we came in to land, our plane dropped 5,000 feet. Whew. And you know what I did? I shouted to Jesus. Whoa, Jesus! And the person next to me says, what? And I said, I'll tell you when we land. <laughs> I know. I couldn't witness right there. But it's okay to shout at Jesus. I remember a car wreck that Tammy and I were in. And we're flipping end over end and landing in the bottom of a creek on the roof as the water's coming in. And the only thing I could get out of my mouth was, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. He hears, even when we're distraught. But when fear wells up, 
Don't be afraid. Believe the promises. It's not a name it, claim it thing. I don't have to name claim anything because God claimed it. Do you get that? He said it. It's not dependent upon whether I claim it or not. It's dependent upon whether he said it or not. And that's completely different in standing on those promises. Now, sometimes fear is um, kind of presumed that there's really not danger. Now, if we go to the next slide, I want to bring this up. So it's been about five years ago. A bunch of us here at church went down to Houston, the third, fourth, and fifth ward. Remember that, guys? Went down there. We get there. And I'm going to tell this story on Rita. We're standing there, and we're all in these bright yellow shirts, neon shirts, in the middle of a black community. And two guys pass themselves on that little narrow street right there, and they must have recognized each other because the one guy just flipped his car and spun his tires out and flipped it around and came back. And Rita yells, oh, my God, we're going to die. You did, too. You were scared. You did, too. <laughs> it, was, it was interesting that when we were down there, we all had a game plan, and we met, and we were passing out Bibles. We, here's what you don't say. You don't say, do you want a Bible? When you knock on somebody's door, you say, I have a gift for you. Would you like it? I've never had anybody turn me down when I said, I have a gift that I want to give you. If I say, do you want a Bible? They're going to say no. But everybody loves a gift. And so we were giving away gifts, and we were praying with people personally. And what was interesting was the kids were bolder than the adults. The kids took off on that deal. And go to the next slide. And the kids are there, and they're witnessing, and they're praying with people. Even in perceived areas of danger. Third and fourth and fifth ward are pretty violent in Houston, Texas. Harris County, Texas, in Houston, that's the county. 95% of the people who are incarcerated have committed a crime in Harris County. So much crime, there's 125 prisons in Texas. But they didn't perceive the danger. Oh, that we would have the faith of our kids. I remember the the adults, we got into it, got into it, and we're going out, and the adults had passed out all their Bibles, and so this is what we've done. Well, I passed out every Bible that Bruce gave me. They didn't even think about, do we have any more? It was the children who came back, sorry for saying children, the youth who came back and said, do we have more Bibles? There's more doors. There's more people that want a Bible. If you go to the next slide, we're gathering children and sharing with them. The kids got to pray with the children. You'd be amazed at the prayer requests that the children had. We pray that my mama's boyfriend doesn't hit her anymore. We pray that I can have enough to eat. And we're praying, but here's what I want you to see. That our faith is not practiced within these walls. Our faith is practiced out there. Because church is not your spiritual journey. Your spiritual journey is to make disciples and to go. And to live spiritually, live out God's presence in the world. That's your spiritual journey. That's your walk. Singing hymns isn't your spiritual walk. Now, I'm not saying don't sing praises to God. That's not what I'm saying. But we've become so comfortable that we think our soul spirituality is praying two prayers at church, singing a few hymns, having a sermon, and leave. That is not Christianity. And that is why that the nuns, the Gen Z group that in the United States right now, that the fastest growing element in our culture today are those who don't believe God exists. And when you talk to them and when we've done research, you will find out this is how they respond. I've never seen anybody live out their faith because they want more than this. They don't want this. 
is boring. They want something else. But I want you to see something. The best thing I ever did as a dad, and I didn't do too many things right, but I did one thing right. And that was whenever I went and did ministry, I drug my boys with me. They know how to share their faith because they saw dad share their faith. They know how to interact with the homeless because they saw dad and mom interact with the homeless. And it's important for you to teach your children how to live out their faith. That is just so imperative that you do that. I remember I was traveling and and Tammy called me and there was this lady alongside the road. She was drunk. She was falling down in the ditch. So she stopped. One of the boys helped her get up and get in the car. And Seth and and Nathan are really small in the back. And Nathan says, oh, mom, I found the Bible. Here, give her a Bible. And Seth goes, tell her about Jesus. See, that's second nature. Because they saw their faith lived out. Had a friend who's an attorney in, in Colorado, and I remember the first promise keeper that I went to. And back then, they told you that it was for men not to bring your sons. I mean, that was the way it was. And that's what they said. And he brought his son. And, and I said to Mark, I said, Mark, why'd you bring your son? He said, I wanted him to see with his eyes 60,000 men on their knees praying to God. Because he won't forget that. Help your children experience their faith. Help them see you share your story. That is so impactful. The second thing, if we go to the next slide that we're looking at, Satan absolutely does not want people saved. If you go back in verse, let's see, 25. When Jesus woke... He rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Suddenly, and the storm stopped, and all was calm. Verse 24, verse 25. And then he asked them, where is your faith? It's interesting in Mark's um, uh, telling of the story that when Jesus got up, he said, be still to the storm. He uses this phrase. And the English Bibles, is when it interprets that sometimes, it's really nice. It says, be quiet. In the Greek, it means shut up. You know, we weren't allowed to say shut up. At least mom never did, but dad did every once in a while. And when it got to that point, he was tired of hearing anything. You know what I mean? He was tired of being playing nice. It was time for you to be quiet. Now I want you to see something. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is casting out a demon. And over in Luke 4.35 he uses the exact same phrase when he casts out a demon, the same phrase that he stopped the storm. He says, be quiet, shut up. Now, I want you to see this, and I believe this by through that phrase, that this storm was satanic. That Satan did not want the disciples to get to the other side of the lake because he knew there was a man there who was demon-possessed, and he did not want him to find Jesus. Satan does not want people to get saved. You know, a lot of times, just because there's an opportunity does not mean that everything's going to sell perfectly. You know, we're kind of that way. We're kind of um, fatalists, if you will, in the fact that, you know, we will only do something for God if we can figure out what the outcome will be. We do this all the time. Is our money well spent? What's the outcome going to be? And it looks like, it looks like it'll all work out. It'll be fine. But that's, that's not the case. I, was, I had the opportunity to go to, if you go to the next slide, to Avenal Prison. And um, this is one of the dorms. There's about a little over 5,000 inmates there. If you go to the next slide, they also have women there. But I brought up a picture of the yard. And what is there, the next slide, There are six prisons there back-to-back, and all the yards come together. And, you know, so much of the time we think, well, when there's an open door, things are just going to go smooth and sailing and everything else. And me being me, I had a brown card, which is like a state ID, so I didn't need to be escorted by any officers or anything. And it was late at night, 
And it's about two and a half miles clear around that thing. And, you know, I had dress shoes on. I hate dress shoes because they hurt your feet. My feet were tired. I did not want to walk clear around to go to that other facility that I was supposed to do a training at. So I decided, well, I'll just cut through the, the prison. And I'm cutting through this yard. And it's commissary night where guys order stuff and they get their, you know, their ramen noodles and whatever else they ordered and stuff like that. But commissary night's always a bad night to be around men and women in prison because usually they forget something and then they're hacked off. You know, I ordered something. It didn't come in the mail. Same way you are with Amazon. It's supposed to come on Tuesday. It did not come on Tuesday. It come on Saturday. You're upset. You're frustrated. I'm walking across this yard and this is a Hispanic, this is a Hispanic yard with a lot of gangbangers on there, a bunch of young cats, so to speak. All they want to do is fight and spit and everything else. And I'm walking across the yard, and these two inmates walk up to me, and the one guy stands in broken English and says, Hey man. And then he says some other things that he's mad. And then all of a sudden he pulls a shank out the binding of a book that he had. And he points it at me, and he says, you're going to get my stuff for me. And um, I went through this, this is hilarious, I went through this training called CPI. So I'm an instructor for nonviolent crisis intervention, using verbal phrases and body motions to de-escalate situations so that you're safe. Whew! I had to memorize that, so I passed the class. I never used it before. All of a sudden, I'm faced with a shank. And so I start doing things. And what's interesting is, I learned this a long time ago. You know, you can talk to people out loud and pray in your head with a completely different conversation at the same time. Because I'm praying to Jesus and we're having this long conversation, but yet I'm talking to this guy at the same time. It can happen. I felt so good about myself. I was able to talk him down. He put his shank back in the, in the side of his book. I even talked him into, I said, hey, it looks like you run this yard, would you help walk me to the other side so I'll be saved? I thought, that worked out pretty good, you know, play up to his pride and everything else. I walked to the other side, I did my thing, and I come home, and I'm in the motel, and I called Tammy, and I told her what happened. And I'm feeling really good about myself. You know what you mean? You know what happened the next three days? I had diarrhea. My nurse told me something else. Something completely different than what I thought I had going on. But when Satan doesn't want you to save people, just because there's an open door does not mean that things aren't going to happen. But that's okay. It's okay. Now, I want you to see that there is this progression if you go to the next slide. When I think about sharing my faith or my story, there's something that happens, this progression if you go to the next slide, how do I prepare to witness? Now, I want you to see this progression. This is what we should do all the time, and it happens over and over and over again in Scripture. That these four elements are involved before somebody shares their faith. It's always there. If you go to um, Acts chapter 1, let's go to Acts 1.8. Go back there, and we're going to kind of progressively go through this. Acts 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the world. When Jesus finishes this and he ascends into heaven, the disciples go back to the upper room. And if you go over to verse 1 of chapter 2, and it says, excuse me, uh, verse 15 of chapter 1. During this time, there was about 120 believers who were together in one place, and Peter stood up and addressed him, and he talks about you know, electing another uh, uh, apostle and so forth. And then we get to verse 1 of chapter 2. And on, the, on that day of Pentecost, all the believers, all 120, all the believers were meeting together in one place. What were they doing? They were praying. I want you to, I'm going to tell you about the oldest prayer that was ever prayed. The oldest prayer that was ever prayed is recorded in church history 
was real simple. Holy Spirit, come. They'd been held up there for 10 days in that upper room. They're doing what Jesus said, wait. But you know, you get tired of waiting because we're a people of action. There's something we need to do. And so they are praying. And they're praying, Holy Spirit, come. That's what they said to wait for. Wait till the Holy Spirit comes. Holy Spirit, come. I think we need to start praying that. Do we ask the Holy Spirit to come when we meet together as a body? Do we ask the Holy Spirit to come when I have my devotion time? Do we ask the Holy Spirit to come when I'm sharing my story? Because it starts with prayer. And from prayer, it's interesting that when you go back um, over in... um, I turned to the wrong sermon in my book. Over in Mark 9, 29, what is interesting is Jesus, this is after the healing of the demonic. The disciples go out and they try to do what Jesus told them to do. And they're trying to cast out this demon. And Jesus says to them, all things are possible to those who believe, but... This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Everything starts with prayer. Everything starts with prayer. And there's some really interesting things that I'd really learned about uh, praying and fasting over in Kenya. When you have a service, the services are several hours long. Prayer time can take longer than that. The, the first year I was there in 2005, I was speaking at this church and everything, and then there's prayer time. First time I spoke, first time I started praying for people. People lined up. Everybody lined up for prayer because a fever can kill you over there. They don't have medical doctors and, and sinners and medicine and stuff like we have. They have to pray for strength, for healing. And everybody lined up. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you quite honestly, I didn't do a very good job at it. After a while, when you've been praying hour after hour, you end up repeat, repeating the same prayer for each person. You know, because you're just trying to get it over with. You get tired. And, and you can't take it anymore. And it's interesting, later on, I'll show you a picture later on. But I do remember that there was one lady who came up that asked me to pray for her son who'd been laying on his mat for two years and he's dying of AIDS. Her prayer request wasn't that he be healed. Her prayer request was that God would give him enough strength so he could walk to church to hear about Jesus and be saved. That was her prayer. All the praying's over with. I'm so glad it's all over with. We're outside. We're giving maize and rice and stuff and oil to the widows and things like that. And all of a sudden... People start screaming and shouting, and the women are doing their thing with their tongue, and and it's loud and everything else, and somebody comes in and says, Bruce, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And so I asked, well, what's the miracle? And they said, come with me. And they brought me back into the church, and here stands this lady that I've been praying for, for her son who was dying of AIDS, and there standing next to her was her son. When I went up, kind of the natural thing to do was to touch them and and give comfort and compassion. And when I went to touch his shoulder, my hand just real practically went and went completely around his arm, his upper arm, and I could touch my fingers together. That's how thin he was. We brought in other pastors, and the pastor came up and says, tell him about Jesus. So I was telling him about Jesus. And he accepted Christ as his Lord and Savior. And they baptized this guy that was just skin and bones. Later that night, I go home, and a couple guys here are with me. So you, know, you do what you always do. You debrief. And we're having this discussion. Was that really a miracle? You ever been there? You know, was this really a miracle? And I got to thinking about that. And then I got to thinking well, it couldn't be a miracle because I did such a lousy job praying. That's what I'm thinking. And then it dawned on me about prayer. 
You see, when we pray, we think our prayers aren't answered, but we feel good about prayer sometimes when we get this feeling that we've done a good job. Or we get this feeling that, you know, I found the right words to say. If I can just get the right formula and I feel good about what I'm doing and then things will happen. But what happens when you don't get the words right and you don't feel good about what you've done? I want to tell you there can be miracles. Because here's the key to prayer. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It has everything to do with obedience. I was asked to pray and I prayed. I prayed bad. It wasn't good. My attitude wasn't right. It didn't, my spirit wasn't into it. But I'm being obedient to God. And I'm praying for this individual. For his salvation. Because you see, God is the key to prayer. Not us. He just wants us to do it. He wants to be a part of that. And then fasting. How many of you have fasted for longer than a week? See, I didn't think I could do that until I'd been sick and dealing with, with this situation of SCS and everything else. And I find myself in the hospital time after time after time after time. And the longest was 17 days where I didn't go without, with any drink or, or any food. And you know what? I survived. And then it dawned on me, I could do this for God. I could really do this for God. The other gospel talks about that Jesus said, you cannot cast out this demon for it will not work, but that you have fasted and prayed. So before you tell your story, I want to invite you and challenge you to at least take off a meal. Don't eat for one of your meals and spend that time praying, letting God know that this is important to you, that I'll skip what I usually do, and I'll spend time with you because I need to share my story with somebody else. And when we do that, we need to ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting. In um, Ephesians 5.18, it says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You say, well, I got the Spirit when I was saved. Absolutely. But there's fillings of the Spirit. In the Greek there, it's asking for it to be a continuation. Day after day after day, asking for the Holy Spirit to fill you. You know why we need to do that? It's because we leak. <laughs> we leak. And, and our spiritual life is, is kind of like a, you know, a, a tire. Every time that I'm just... Working in the flesh and I sin is kind of like running over a nail, and I'm just my spiritual life is. And I try to drive on a flat. And you can't drive on a flat. You can't function there spiritually. You have to ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you. Now, how is the Holy Spirit filling work with witnessing? Acts 4.31. And when they prayed, the prayer, and where they had gathered together, the place was shaken, and all were filled with the Holy Spirit. The last part of that verse is important. And they began to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. You know why you're afraid and you're not bold? Because you haven't prayed, you haven't fasted, and you haven't asked the Holy Spirit to fill you. There's a, there's a direct correlation between the filling of the Holy Spirit and boldness. So when you struggle, and, and you say, well, Bruce is crazy. He does all this stuff all the time. He shares his story all the time and everything. Listen, I am so nervous. I'm as nervous as Andrew is. I'm as nervous as Peppy was. I'm as nervous as anybody when I share my story. Because I really believe we just come under attack by Satan. He just really doesn't want us to do it. Because we start thinking... My story isn't good enough. You know, this last week, I really haven't been living for Christ. I just don't feel spiritual. I'm just really struggling with the sin. I can't get over the sin. It keeps coming back in my life. So how can I go off and tell somebody else about Jesus? And that's just Satan getting in our head, saying this stuff to us over and over again. That we're unworthy to tell the story about what's going on. But in Acts 1, it says, it talks about the 120 are praying. 
They're fasting. They're asking the Holy Spirit to come so they can be filled with the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And it says, it came on everyone who was gathered together, the 120. It wasn't just the apostles who spoke in tongues. It was all 120. You can go back and study and do that principle. Go back to the nearest antecedent and see who the subject matter is of what's being talked about. The 120 spoke in tongues. Now, who were the 120? I want you to see this. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, it's interesting. When Peter gets up to preach, he starts quoting from Joel. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, what took place at Pentecost was what was prophesied in Joel, and Joel calls it the day of the Lord. The book of Joel is very prophetic. There are three days of the Lord. One, two, three. And the third one hasn't happened yet. He talks about when Christ returns. But the second one, the middle one, was when he talks about the pouring out of the Spirit. Notice what he says. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people, your sons and daughters, children, will be filled with the Holy Spirit. They will prophesy, and the young men will see visions, our youth. And your old men will dream dreams. Alan. He talked about that the other night. In those days I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they shall prophesy. There's no gender issue. There's no age issue. God has called all of us to be witnesses. And we can all be filled with the spirit. And that is so important. With what we're doing. If we go to the next slide, I got this out of uh, sync. This was the gentleman who was uh, dying of AIDS. If we go to the next one, please. How much is a soul worth? The disciples make it to the other side, and that story starts on uh, 22 and in verse 26. They arrived and they're in the region of the Gerasenes across the lake from Galilee. And Jesus was climbing out of the boat, and a man who was possessed by the demons came out to meet him. And for a long time he had been homeless, naked, living in the tombs outside of town. And the story goes on to talk about that the the man who was demon-possessed runs up to Jesus and actually starts the conversation. And Jesus... Cass asks him what his name is, and he gives him his name, Legion, around 600, 834 soldiers in a legion. What is interesting is, at this cemetery, 200 years earlier, a Roman legion came through and destroyed the town, massacred everybody. And they talked about how Satan had come, and those people are buried there. This is the same place. And this man is acting out. And Jesus casts out the demon, and they said, can we go into this herd of pigs? So on the other side, on Galilee, on the other side of Galilee, one side was Jewish. The other side was Gentile. Just like we talked about, Jesus didn't want, he said he had to go through Samaria, but Jews didn't want to go through Samaria. Jews did not cross the lake to go over to the other side of Galilee. They just didn't do it. And when Jesus gets there, what is interesting is everything that they're doing is defiling them as a Jew. Everything that he's risking for. But Jesus says, okay, I'll cast out the demon and I'll put him in the hogs and the, and the hogs are filled with the spirits and they run off a cliff and they die. Everybody who saw what happened runs back in town and starts telling everybody what has happened. And they're not happy. When I ask the question, how much is a soul worth? How much are we willing to risk to bring somebody to Jesus? One, Jesus risks going through a satanic storm and losing everybody in the boat. When he gets to the other side, he drowns 2,000 hogs. Now, If I were to go 
So some farmer around here had 2,000 hogs, and I set his barn on fire, and the hogs are destroyed. That's still going to be a lot of money. But over there, I want you to see, all of a sudden, Jesus put people out at work. They didn't have a job anymore. Well, what am I supposed to do? I took care of the hogs. You don't have a job anymore. He completely destroyed the food source for those Gentiles in that area. What am I going to eat? How much is that worth? How much is a soul worth? When you start coming up with the monetary value of things. I don't know how many meetings I've been a part of when we're talking about outreach and we start talking about how much is it going to cost. And then sometimes we say, well, it wasn't worth it because we only had about 10 kids or 10 people or 15 people come to the Lord. You know, you just can't justify spending that kind of money. But you know what? I bet if it was our child, I bet if it was your wife or your husband, you'd spend whatever it takes for them to be with you in eternity. That's how much a soul's worth. It's so incredible how much a soul's worth. The people lost their jobs, their food. It destroyed, they probably would have to move. Think about that. If we don't have a job around here, we relocate to some place who has a job so I can take care of my family. People were uprooted. Now, when we read this story, it's just really wild. A crazy guy in a cemetery who's demon-possessed, and Jesus heals him, and he ends up serving Jesus. You know, these, these Bible stories are crazy, but I want to tell you a story that completely reflects what just happened here. If we go to the next slide, this is a friend of mine, clear on the right in a black shirt. That's Ray Rapaglia. I met Ray, I heard in 2017, I heard the story that he was brought to the White House to give his testimony and stuff, and I was doing some work in Florida and everything. I was down in the Miami area, and I knew Ray lived down there, so I stopped by to see him, and we do a lot of work together. Let me tell you Ray's story. He was the youngest person ever to work on Wall Street. He was a genius. At one point, he was making $250,000 a month. That's what he was bringing in. About 15 years into his life, he started doing what everybody else did. At the end of the day, you went to the bar and you had a drink. But that led to not just going to the bar and having a drink, but going to the bathroom and do a line of Coke. And he got involved in that, and it destroyed his life. To the point where he, he'd been arrested 20 times. This is amazing. He'd been arrested 20 times and didn't, hadn't never done any jail time. He had an incredible lawyer. But he gets hooked on this drug called Flaca. If you don't know what Flaca is, you can Google it. Came out of Miami. Years ago, you probably heard this phrase. Remember when it was talked about bath salts? Remember we were talking about those things being sold in... in uh, uh, gas stations and things like that, and, and kids having just this in, in tre- incredible hallucinations and jumping off bridges and all this kinds of stuff, came out of Miami. He got hooked on Flacco. They call it the devil's drug. That's what they call it in Florida, the devil's drug. He became homeless, and so he took up residence outside of Miami in a cemetery. He lived under a tree in this broken-down tent for 10 years, raided. People avoided the cemetery to the point they would even buy different plots so they wouldn't even have to go there to to bury their, their loved ones because they didn't want to have to deal with Ray because he'd run and he'd scream at people and try to scare them and everything else. One day, Ray had got to the point that he said his Life wasn't worth living at all. It wasn't, he said it was bad the way it was, but he said it finally just got to the point that I was just going to end it. And so what he had done was he had spent the last two weeks collecting all different types of rope so that he could weave it together. And he threw the rope over the lowest limb and made a noose. And he was standing on a five-gallon bucket ready to jump off of it when this man walked by. 
And he walks up to him. And he says, what are you doing? And Ray's yelling and shouting at him and different things like that. He said the man kind of prayed quietly. And then all of a sudden he started talking about Jesus. And he said, for some reason, every time he said Jesus, he said, I kind of have relief. He said, it was weird. He goes, I was going through withdrawal. He said, I needed to fix. But every time he said Jesus, I didn't feel so all worked up. And then he finally leads Ray to the Lord and gives him a Bible and takes him to a motel and gives him a place to stay. Has Ray's story had an impact? He's been recognized by the United Nations. He's told his story on ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN. He's recognized by the African Council. He was recognized for his life change in Washington, D.C. And he's recognized, if you go to Miami today, and on August 20th, every August 20th in Miami, they celebrate Ray Rapaglia Day. The day he gave his life to Christ and changed it. You see, today, Ray runs James Club. And at James Club, there's almost 300 men who live there who had spent time in prison with addictions and everything else. And he disciples them. And I went down there to do a training for him and everything else. But I want you to hear this. Your story matters. It mattered to Washington, D.C. We didn't hear about it. It matters to a city of Miami. It matters to all the men and women that, by telling his story, leading them to Christ and helping them get over their addiction, his story matters. Sounds just like the healing of the demonic, doesn't it? Living in a cemetery, running around yelling at people. I just want to encourage you today that there is danger when you witness. That's because Satan's bringing it. So, you know, when we, we played basketball and everything else, I'm pretty competitive. When somebody brought it, what did you do? You brought it right back. The same amount of passion, the same amount of effort, the same amount of gumption to fight. Paul says, fight the good fight. He didn't say, just get along, just play the game. No one's keeping score. Everybody gets a trophy. That's not the way it is. Only those who have fought the good fight and win the race spend eternity with Christ. Are you willing to fight for your faith? Are you willing to battle the evil that is around you? Will you do it? Will you battle it? There's a Methodist church in out, just outside of downtown in, in Pittsburgh where there were so many drug deals taking place. There was a stretch of about eight blocks. And there's all these crack homes all around this elementary school. And the police couldn't do anything about it. They'd arrest people. People just came back and it just kept going on and on and on and on. And this little Bible study of these old people all over 60 years old, got together and they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to stand and make a life change chain and get people to come along with us. And they made a life chain for seven blocks. They weren't all bound up, but they were, you know, just split apart, making this life chain so that when kids walked to school, they were safe. And when they were interviewed... They were asked by the, the, the TV crew, aren't you afraid of dying? And they're all the same. Now, nah, I'm old. I've lived a long life. I got Jesus in my life. What do I have to be afraid of? You know what happened within a couple months? Those crack houses closed down. They were so bold. When they saw a car pulled up, they went over to talk to him about Jesus. They got tired of it. They got tired of being confronted about their lifestyle and what was going on. But listen, they were willing to fight the fight to confront evil. 
And that's what God has asked us to do is to battle, to help build his kingdom on earth. You see, I don't have to wait to die and go to heaven to be in God's presence. I already have it. It's not going to get, listen, it's not going to get any greater when I die God's presence in my life on what I can have right now. I'll get to know what he looks like. But as far as the filling of his presence completely, Jesus is here now. He's living inside of me. I just don't think we believe it. I don't think we believe it. I don't think we get it. Because if I really got it, why would I fear anything when I share my story? Because I got power. I have the Holy Spirit. You'll always wrestle with it. It's going to come to your mind, and you're going to put yourself down, and you're going to think you're unworthy, you're so sinful, and you know what? You're right. (laughs) Jesus said he came to die for sinners. You're right. You are unworthy. But that's okay. Jesus is still willing to hang out with you, and he wants to hang out with you. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for tonight. I'm thankful for the love that this man had when he was healed. And Jesus told him, don't come with us. Go back to your family. Your family. And tell them what happened to you. God, I can't imagine what that was like when he came home and knocked on that door and they saw him standing there all clothed, in his right mind, praising Jesus. Man, what a reunion. Father, help us as we go to our families. Give us boldness. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Fill us. Father, help us to pray bold prayers. Help us to show that we're serious. And Father, help us to fast and give us power. Give us power that even surprises us. God, speak through us. Surprise us, these words that will come out of our mouth when we're telling our story. Just surprise us. Surprise us with the scriptures that we'll remember that we forgot that we read a long time ago. Father, surprise us with your presence. Holy Spirit, we say come. I know you're here now. I just ask that you come upon everybody here tonight, that you fill them. And Father, in some special way, I know we don't always, but help them to feel your presence, to know you're here, that you love them, that you're willing to walk through a storm for them, that you don't leave us behind. And Father, I'm so thankful for your love and forgiveness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.